0: Hello folks So far we have looked at Berkson's psychological writings what he has to say about the relationship between matter and memory as well as his contribution to evolutionary understanding and creative evolution While time and free will did not exactly make explicit the question of morality it is certainly germane to the text Time and free will after all is a defence of freedom Even if in the text Berkson is only interested in showing us the fact of freedom and Time and free will, Bergson articulates the what of freedom, if not necessarily the ought of freedom. In 1932, 25 years after Creative Evolution, Bergson turns directly to the question of morality in his work, The Two Sources of Morality and Religion, in French, Les Deux Sources de Morale et de la Religion. Here is Bergson's most sustained engagement with questions of morality, ethics, religion, and the sources of value. In two sources, we get what could tentatively be called a vitalist ethics, although, as we will see, that framing is troublesome, as Bergson is not strictly offering an ethics, a code of behaviour, or sets of foundational principles. What he is doing, and this will be the themes of our lecture, is examining the continuity, overlap and deviance between evolutionary life and human social, ethical and political life. In addition, Bergson in two sources offers a rich account of the relation and necessity of static and dynamic societies as well as the moral significance of heroes and exemplars. Part 1. The Closed Society One thing we need to understand with Bergson's engagement with morality is that when he says things like closed and open or static and dynamic, he is not making a moral claim about one or the other. He is not expressing a moral preference for either of those terms It is not that he is, like Karl Popper, endorsing a moral preference for the open society over his enemies Or indeed a closed society over an open one As such, he is suggesting all societies oscillate between closed and open iterations of themselves to varying degrees Two sources then attempts to determine why this is the case The upshot of understanding morality in this way is that it frees Birx from making moral prescriptions or classifications. So, say something like the left-right distinction in political terms, or even a moral preference of the ethics of us over the ethics of them. To think of morality in these rudimentary classificatory ways actually entirely misses the point of morality. In fact, efforts to size people up, to classify them in terms of what they are like, how they agree or are spiritually close to us, is an empty abstraction. Morality, if it is to be worthy of the name, has to be concrete and applied. So, explaining the dynamic and the process of how society is closed and open provides a richer, more nuanced and dynamic account of how our moral lives actually unfold. It also frees Bergson from being judgmental. But where does this dynamic between closed and open stem from? The opening chapters of Two Sources starts... As with much of Bergson's works, with a stringent distinction, that is, the static and dynamic. It's important to realize that this distinction, closed and open, static and dynamic, has its origins in Bergson's work on evolutionary theory. In creative evolution, Bergson tells us that life evolves towards necessity and freedom. Necessity is the rule of imperatives, and freedom is the rule of the provisional, as well as openness. In creative evolution, we see the distinction take the form of instincts and intelligence or matter and spirit in another register, if you like. This is where the dynamic between the closed and open originates, between these two types of intelligence. When organisms develop over deep, long evolutionary time, they tend towards expressing both instincts and intelligence to greater or lesser degrees. This is not to say that instinctual evolution is stupid or lesser in some way. Quite the contrary, The instinctive life of insects, for example, can lead to quite complex and sophisticated social structures. For example, answer bees. Equally, intelligence is not a guarantee of sophistication. We know this because intelligence is not a necessary prerequisite of profundity or good sense. The point being, though, that all life has these basic imperatives. An impulse towards instinctive rule following. And remember, an instinct is a type of imperative. And an impulse towards freedom and rule questioning. Now, all forms of life conform to this logic albeit the different tendencies and ways organisms develop is peculiar to themselves. I think it's also important to realise that at all levels of life these impulses, instinct and intelligence, permeate each other. So, species and individual organisms contain both. There is a degree of intellect and species dominated by instinct and conversely there is a degree of instinctive life and species dominated by intellect as Berkson holds. And here I quote him, instinct and intelligence have each as their essential object the utilisation of implements. In the first case organs supplied by nature and hence immutable, in the second invented tools and therefore varied and unforeseen. The implement is moreover designed for a certain type of work and this work is all the more efficient the more it is specialised, the more it is divided up between diversely qualified workers who mutually supplement one another. Social life is thus imminent like a vague ideal in instinct as well as in intelligence. This ideal finds its most complete expression in the hive or the antel on the one hand in human societies on the other. Bergson's point here is about incremental disassociation. All forms of life are comprised of instinctual and intellectual imperatives but they're gradually separated through evolutionary processes The outcome is both types of life aim towards creation of forms of sociality or group solidity. Irrespective of whether the forms of life are insect, animal or human, the general impulse is towards organisation. This does not mean all organisms aim towards sociality. Penguins have been known to go their own way. Only that there is an impulse towards organisation, towards gathering, towards sociality. Life forms will tend towards general coordination where possible, as well as subordination of particular instances of species' rule-breaking. There is, though, an essential difference between instinctual and intelligent forms of organisation. The instinctually dominated species have an immutable quality. This is to say that, however complex their instincts are, these instincts remain rule-bound and must follow natural imperatives. They are obliged or governed by the realm of necessity. Or, as Bergson puts it, the individual ant is, and I quote, riveted to his task by his structure and the organisation is relatively invariable. In contrast, the more cultivated the intelligence, the more a species is able to question and transform their natural imperatives. This latter prospect is, of course, something humans can do since humans have an indefinite, I say indefinite rather than infinite, liberty, an indefinite liberty for variation. Again, this does not mean we are not influenced by necessities, of course we are but Bergson's point is that we cannot absolutely separate our morality from its origin in natural imperatives. Our natural tendencies, our instincts, have their social and moral correlate in static or closed morality this is the natural impulse we have to follow orders, to conform to obligations and duties in an effort to ensure the species survives. So really all moral talk is truly just survival talk Any moral imperatives we have quickly turn into debates about the best means of survival. This is really the origin of our moral thinking. And as to why social mores, conventions and customs exert such a strong sway over human beings. For better and worse, our morals have their origin in the necessity of a rule, as Bergson puts it. Things we find... Morally distasteful like cruelty, mendacity, snobbery, we do so because it is transgressing our natural instincts to survive. Bergson puts it this way, and I quote, The more, in human society, we delve down to the root of the various obligations to reach obligation in general, the more obligation will tend to become necessity, the nearer it will draw in its peremptory aspect to instinct. However, Whatever the intensity of social pressure Bergson thinks that humans due to the evolutionary cultivation of intelligence have they also hold the ability to determine particular obligations. In a very basic way the human exists between our impulses to conserve as well as our impulses to progress. Part 2 The Open Society What is important, firstly, for Bergson is to show how our moral lives are not polar opposites which is strictly open or closed. The human being is continually developing in tandem with both. Secondly, Bergson wants to show the significance of these impulses playing out in our moral lives. Thirdly, there is a higher imperative at play. Now, it is not, I think, the case that Bergson is prescriptive or that he is telling us what we ought to not, not do, but he is demanding of us that we aspire to the truth of our natural life. We need to live up to how our species continually develops in tandem with both these modes, closed and open, if we are to enrich and enhance ourselves. Being attuned to the conflicting imperatives which govern our lives enable us to deal with the concrete and practical needs of humanity, rather than in codified ideological or moral abstractions. While closed morality and stratic religion, as Bergson will later touch upon, enables a form of survival through social cohesion and group unanimity, this impulse is continually put into question through revision of obligations. While closed morality is necessary for survival, indeed some species are weaker on their own and need to cooperate to forestall inherent natural weaknesses, bees in a hive, communal spider webs or dual human parenting even, This need for mutual dependence is not absolutely determined. It can be strong and loom large in our lives, certainly, and it is hard to escape the need for the support of social cohesion and community. However, as we've pointed out, this is a matter of intensity rather than strict necessity. Social cohesion can give off the air of being immutable, but it is not necessarily so. Thus, this open society is inherent, even a natural phase of a closed society. From an evolutionary perspective, this makes sense. Whatever forms of social cohesion or moral obligation impose themselves upon us have to continually be evaluated and adapted to increase chances of survival. We should realise that closed values have to be questioned, overruled, perhaps even ridiculed, in order to enhance the prospect of survival. If life, even a good and flourishing life, is defined by commitment to duties and moral obligation, any action which further these ends are in some sense subject to an auto-critique. Any actions to further the closed society demonstrate that our obligations are up for grabs, even in their own perpetuation. Furthermore, a move towards an open society is constitutive of a closed society, to a greater or lesser degree. The origin of value, then, comes from a sense of obligation. But a sense of obligation which invariably tends towards the utopian. In a way, what Bergson is saying is that our social obligations are haunted by idealism. The idealism of the open society is demonstrated in diverse ways. We see it in the spontaneous action and questioning of prevailing social norms. However that might be, we see it in the irreducible and dynamic desire inherent in societies to aspire to be better than they are. And we see it in society's exhibition of moral universalism. And even further, in newer calls for the divine. Again, we should be careful. Bergson is not making a claim for the left or the right of the political spectrum. Indeed, in Bergson's terms, the open could be applicable to both left and right, or reactive and progressive, as far as particular iterations of those trends move towards their ideals. I suppose what is key is to understand our moral origins and to accept how those origins find shape in lives made up of competing impulses. Moral life is the negotiation of drives to the particular, the communal, the local, as well as drives towards the general, the universal and the collective. The latter defines the morality of aspiration, or better, the aspirational force of morality perhaps. So, while closed morality tends towards rules, the binding of instinct, obligations and impersonal abstract codes, open morality appeals to what lies beyond extant society, to the unclassifiable, to the unordered, the inventive and the unorthodox. There is a reason moral reformers are instantaneously perceived as troublemakers, socially uncouth, or worse, treasonous. But, of course, the appeal to the new is often an appeal to the old. Aspirational morality often ends up in the installation of a new morality. Indeed, Berkson is noticeably clear on this. That which is open eventually adopts forms of life governed by rules and institutions, typical of closed societies, as he says... And I quote, that which is aspiration tends to materialise by assuming the form of strict obligation. That which is strict obligation tends to expand and to broaden out by absorbing aspiration. What is important is our moral life is just that moral life. It is characterised by an intermingling of both these impulses. The logic is inescapable. The separation of both open and closed is actually a dangerous abstraction. From this perspective of individual humans, Berkson thinks a fuller picture of morality gives a more real, a fuller picture of the human. In turn, a picture of our moral life where none of us are exempt from being avatars of the open or avatars of the closed. The things which we might hold as a paragon of progress, utterly sacred and foundational, are likely to have once, upon a time been germinating from the seeds of some reformer. Equally, our greatest aspirations have within them the possibility of rest, security and obligation. What is frustrating for the exponents of a closed society, but essential for the exponents of a new society, is the sheer nebulousness of a new order. How often do idealists get accused of not being pragmatic? But, in another sense, this open-endedness is an essential part of our values It works, it appeals precisely because life seeks out the new, the better, and advance over prevailing customs. There can be no fixed goals, definitive prescriptions, even sometimes discussions of instrumental means towards the ideal must also be shunned. The cynic would, I suppose, say, never make the perfect the enemy of the good. But Bergson's point is that there is really no such thing as a pure or perfect society, or a pure or perfectly closed or pure or perfectly open society. What is called good is just another form of classification, obscuring the forces of impulsion and attraction which form the basis of our ethical lives. The open society then veers towards the uncertain, the unclassifiable, and grasps for the sheer jai we often take in breaking down rules or when rebelling against social cohesion in an effort to inspire humans to transcend the particular confines of social obligation. There is then, in the open society, an appeal to humanity, or the universal, which is typical of open morality. In addition, open morality is intuitive rather than rational, romantic rather than instrumental and pragmatic. The open society proceeds intuitively. Certain humans are fundamentally good, or to borrow Rousseau's phrase, humans are born free but are everywhere in chains, and that it is society or institutions or the system which corrupt that innate humanity. The close society, follows Hobbes, I suppose, and sees any social cohesion both necessary and better than a life in the wilderness without civility. For individuals, the embrace of humanity we find in the open society accept the needs and goodness of humanity as a whole. From the perspective of the individual who extols the need for an open society, they exhibit creativity, sensitivity, emotional intuition, sympathy, as well as a desire to transcend sectional interest an extant social mores, be they that of tribe, community, team, family or country. There is an interesting opposition here. It is the close society which is the avatar of reason, pragmatism and instrumentalism and the open society that yearns to extend itself beyond particularistic commitments, particularistic ties and natural affiliations. The question remains, though, why do we aspire to be morally better? The answer is because moral exemplars or prophetic figures expand the scope of our moral sensitivity. Part 3 Heroes and Mystics In two sources we have this tension between moral obligation, social unanimity, pure pressure and the drive, the aspiration towards the new, the creative and the intuitive. On the one hand we have rules, rationale, moral prescriptions which adopt the appearance of impersonality. But on the other we are continually challenged with demands and appeals by those who represent the best in humanity. In Berkson's own words, both depict our moral life, and I quote, as a system of orders dictated by impersonal social requirements and a series of appeals made to the conscience of each of us by persons who represent the best there is in humanity. The obligation relating to the orders is, in its original and fundamental elements, sub-rational. The potency of the appeal lies in the strength of the emotion it has aroused in times gone by, which it arouses still, or can arouse. This emotion, if only because it can indefinitely be resolved into ideas, is more than idea. It is supra-rational. Bergson is appealing to a deeper truth, a superior empiricism, where what we take to be natural is enhanced with a deeper, sensitising to the needs of humans as we live. Who, though, makes this appeal? Well, these are individuals really who spur us on and inspire beyond the closed morality. They are heroes, prophets, mystics, whose emotional intelligence prepares us with a moral energy to connect to the ilan vital, to life itself, and move our norms, institutions towards life itself. Open morality tends to have a social impetus in the vision and social contagion of exceptional, even hallowed individuals. The idea being closed morality tends to the immediate needs and interests of society and this closed morality is prodded, tested and moved by individuals and moral exemplars to better versions of humanity as a whole. Within any iteration of social life or group cohesion we will find, in the parlance of our own times, disruptors, individuals, heroes, saints, prophets, mystics who develop our moral horizon Expand our moral awareness beyond the bounds of narrow utilitarianism, economic instrumentalism and political expediency. These individuals are superior beings, sur in French. It is hard not to detect a trace of Nietzsche's Übermensch there. They continually and necessarily demand of society a new morning, the advent of a superior humanity. These heroes disrupt the transactional and narrow self-interests of a closed society, where we add the halfpence to the pence, in the words of William Butler Yeats. The economical and irrational is surpassed, opened, moved by infinite love, by charity, by dedication, by commitment. In characteristically poetic terms, Bergson tells us: heroes brace themselves up for an entirely new effort, they burst a dam. They were then swept back into a vast current of life. From their increased vitality they radiated an extraordinary energy, daring, power of conception and realisation. That was the role of heroes for Bergson. There's also a mythic dimension to how Bergson conceives of morality. He is saying moral exemplars imbue close societies with tendencies, patterns and forms of life which bequeath a spirit of creativity. Myths and stories of moral excellence persist throughout human history, awaiting novelization and awakening in newer contexts. Thus, heroes can be living or dead, indeed that transcend the boundaries of death and life, imposing an appeal or allure, challenging us to be the best versions of ourselves. Of course, whether we Accept this call or not is another matter But heroes ensure that the question, the appeal, the attraction of our best lives is always possible In fact it is pure possibility itself Berkson's vitalist ethics then is very much about, well, life Morality is about sustenance and about ensuring our lives survive beyond the state of prevailing social mores We can see here Berkson returning to his favourite themes in the same way spatial organisation is unable to classify temporal life, moral principles, codes, formulas are unable to classify our inevitable impulse to make our society full, whole, vital and most of all lived, alive, fresh, while in the close society we are certainly creatures of habit, obliging and obedient, principled, pious. But in order to fully do justice to our humanity, it is critical we have figures who sustain and rededicate us to an unrepresentable good, a good always palpable yet never present in the coordinates of our existing social life. Of course, an unclassifiable good is invariably felt to be unsatisfactory for those maintaining a status quo as much as those who unthink to change it. But this is exactly what is most important for Bergson: Morality, if it is to be worthy of the name must see morality as activity as a doing, something to be conducted and acted upon. Action. Thus moral invention is paramount over empty moral abstractions. The mystic, hero, and prophet occupy an interesting place for Bergson. There is a religious element to the demands that they impose upon us. They drive us beyond. They help make us seers of our own humanity, the divine itself. Two sources does have a religious dimension, or at least a mystical dimension. Moral heroes are mystics, intuitive seers. They help us make sense of duration, d'élan vital. Their altar is the dynamism of life itself, rather than a religion typified in institutional intransigence. Our heroes and mystics are creators themselves, not passive observers, nor virtuous judgers, but transgressors, who make explicit, the inevitable confrontation of a closed society with movement and change. The importance of heroes is, for Bergson, well, vital. Again, we should be cautious. Bergson is not saying terrible things do not happen or that life does not have a tragic dimension. Rather, he is saying heroes equip us with the ability to cope and transcend the inevitable tragedy and limitations of life. Or in other words, a closed society. We draw resilience and succour from their examples. We find beatitude and blessing. We get the strength to continue. We see the dawn in the darkness, and so on. While these phrases certainly sound like cheap truisms, Bergson's point is that aspiration is a necessary, unavoidable, and significant part of our moral lives. Humans need to connect to the epic. We are always seeking heroic action to make sense of moral obligations. We are always looking for an exit, and heroes provide the impetus to connect us to the flow and drama of life itself. Connecting to the epic is not only important for expanding our moral health, but also decisive for our mental well-being. And here I quote Bergson again. Yet there is an exceptional, deep-rooted mental healthiness which is readily recognisable. It is expressed in the bent for action, the faculty of adapting and readapting oneself to circumstances, in fineness combined with suppleness, in the prophetic discernment of what is possible and what is not, in the spirit of simplicity which triumphs over complications, in a word, supreme good sense. In conclusion, Bergson sees our moral life as originating in evolutionary life. We, like all other organisms, are creatures of instinct and intelligence, mechanism and freedom, to greater or lesser degrees. Instincts are necessary imperatives for all species. In mechanical instincts we find the origin of a closed society, our adherence to rules and obligations, the things that we have to do to ensure the procreation of our own group. Also, Berkson thinks humans have a bent towards contingency, a disposition to seek out the open society, when the natural rules of our societies are questioned, tested and experimented upon so as to aspire to better versions of ourselves. The best in society are heroes, prophets, and mystics. These are moral paragons, moral exemplars, figures who connect, make whole, and heal our time. They connect the past, the present, and the future. They are creators who transgress the boundaries of social cohesion, conformity, and the imperatives of social obligation. They are those who incline towards transforming the very fabric of our existence heroes, mystics and prophets are those visionaries who ensure we do not fall foul of the forces of barbarism, cynicism and cruelty they do this by ensuring there is always a possibility of a new tomorrow in 1941 in Nazi occupied Paris Berkson left his sickbed to stand in line in order to register as a Jew he had been offered an exemption from these laws by the Vichy government he refused this offer he wanted to and I quote remain among those who tomorrow were to be persecuted he died a few weeks later